Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. So so glad you could join me. I want to thank first Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Um, you can find him um, if you Google Native Storytellers on, on Google on the Internet. He and his wife are Native Storytellers, and they have preserved an amazing history of their culture in stories. And it's, it's how we learned and preserve history uh, before the written word, and, and the stories are amazing, and they talk of cosmology, and they talk of so many different aspects of life. It, it is an amazing thing to experience. Check them out. It's Ken Quiethawk, Native Storytellers. Google them, of course, after the show. Don't do it now. Um, but, but do it then. Uh, I have with me tonight um, an amazing author. His name is Ryan Peterson. And he is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew thought and theology. And he received his B.A. from the University of Rochester and his J.D. from Columbia University Law School. It's quite a combination of academia, actually. Um, We're going to be talking tonight about an absolutely cool book that he's written. Um, it, It actually was a number one bestseller on Amazon. It's called The Judgment of the Nephilim. And let me give you a little bit of peek into what it's all about. Um, 6,000 years ago, a war began, a war to rule heaven and earth that dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, God told Satan that one day a woman would give birth to a male child, the Messiah, who would redeem humanity and destroy him. So in order to prevent this child's birth, Satan instigated a fallen angelic rebellion. A group of angels broke off their allegiance to the Lord and entered the earthly realm to corrupt the human gene pool and prevent the Savior's birth. These fallen angels, sons of God, took human wives, daughters of men, and had children with them. Their offspring, hybrid, half-human, half-angelic beings, were superhuman giants known as the Nephilim. I think there's another way to pronounce that, but I I go with Nephilim. 
With human DNA corrupted and humanity hanging in the balance, the Lord unleashed punishment against the Nephilim so severe only Noah and his family would survive. Now, I know this sounds like um, an adventure book rather than actually biblical history. And they say often that reality is far stranger and wilder and more intensive than any fiction that one could write. And that's true. And what's really cool is that as as amazing as this book is, as insightful and informative as it is, there is a second book coming called The Final Nephilim, which will explore the return of the fallen angels and the rise of the Antichrist in the end times prophecies of Revelation. So um, you're going to have to come back and join with us again in April when Ryan comes back to talk about that book. But But for tonight... We're going to be going into the judgment of the Nephilim. We're going to be learning some stuff and expanding on other stuff. Um, I found this book wonderfully insightful. It, it, it made clear a lot of aspects that I thought I had figured out. And, and, you know, for the most part, I was sort of always on the right track. I just didn't go far enough. So welcome to the show, Ryan. I'm so glad you could join us tonight. Thank you for having me, Barbara. I am excited to be on, and uh, I appreciate it, the opportunity. Well, you know, you, you've written an amazing book about a, a, a time that, <clears throat> that Genesis talks about. And, you know, when you read the Bible, frankly, it's, it's not an easy read, but your book is. And, and you do bring the biblical texts in to explain where your, your, your material comes from. But but you explain things to the point where there is a bigger and better flow of understanding as to what was going on at those times. I mean, when you when you talk about you know three thousand, five thousand, eight thousand years ago, however far back you go, the culture and the frame of reference of people who were writing things then was so different from today that it's very hard sometimes to be able to understand what they were talking about and what they were inferring in what they were writing. Definitely. And I think it's, you know, what I really want to do, that was one of my, you really identified one of the main motivations that I had in writing the book is that once I really stumbled upon, you know, the, the supernatural interpretation of Genesis six, you know, I was, I, you know, I received actually a DVD documentary um, called the Nephilim or Nephilim, either pronunciation is fine, the Nephilim among us. And uh, it explains that, you know, what I call the supernatural interpretation that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were fallen angels and how this uh, commingling of angel and human, taking human lives and giving birth to these hybrid beings and how it just really blew me away. And what I saw was that not only was this in Genesis 6, but this is really the overarching story of the Old Testament, that this is much bigger than just one chapter. It really deals with the entire story of the Bible and the, the birth uh-huh. of the Messiah and how this is about preventing or corrupting and preventing God's plan of redemption for humanity, which is the entire basis of the Bible. And so once I – that really motivated me to make a book that could really – pull all the different aspects because this is really something that weaves its way throughout the Old Testament narrative. And I wanted to really pull it together to make it clear 
that this is what the Bible is saying and emphasizing all throughout different aspects of Scripture that we may not normally connect with the Nephilim and show that, that not only is it the Bible saying this, but that also this has been the understanding in the church and the Jewish community for millennia. Well, now, when when Satan decided that, you know, he was going to rebel, <clears throat> um, he, he challenged God, and, and there were fallen angels. Were all fallen angels corrupted into taking daughters of men, or was it just a certain number of them? Is, is there a, are there two groups here, a big group of fallen angels and then a small group of angels that really decided to screw up royally? <laughs> That's a great way to put it, and an excellent question. So you're correct. The latter is correct, that this was a faction of the fallen angels. The original uh, angelic rebellion took place, predated Adam and Eve. You know, when we see uh-huh. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, when, of course, when they eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the devil is already fallen. He's already evil. He shows up as a villain you know, in Genesis. And so that was the original rebellion when one-third of the angels aligned with Satan in rebellion against God. Within that group, there was a... uh, Yeah, sure. Their reason for rebelling was that God had made human and the human was going to be above the angels. Is that correct? Well, I believe that the original cause of the rebellion was simply that the devil, because you know Ezekiel twenty-eight, which I, which is one of the pivotal chapters in describing Satan as before his fall. You know, he talks about that. He says he was in Eden, the Garden of God, that he wore. That he describes him wearing jewels, and there are nine uh-huh. jewels there described: the the sardis, the topaz, um, and among others. And those nine stones are nine of the same 12 stones that Aaron, the high priest, was instructed to wear in his breastplate when he entered the temple. So that's scripture telling us that Satan was in a priestly role in the Garden of Eden when he was good, but when he was still loyal and a righteous angel. It says that he was corrupted by his beauty, that it was power. It was his power and an aspiration to be God, to take over and dethrone God with the original the original thing was that of pride and ambition to actually usurp God. Okay. And once he so, fell, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that that was that was you know where I was you know so that the the original rebellion was was because um, God had created humanity. Right. Yeah, but, and, so that the creation of humanity was was. Uh, Basically, God's response to say that, because when Adam, of course, is created, he's given dominion over the Garden of Eden and over earth. Uh-huh. You know, the Psalms say that the earth was given to the children of men, that humanity was given the earth. And so it was not only was the area that was once under the devil's rulership and authority given to Adam, it was also the implication of that was that humanity could replace the angels in the divine order. So the one-third who uh-huh. rebelled, they could be replaced because now there's a new creation that could replace them, and they weren't they would, they, and forever locking them in punishment. And so that is what really set up the, set the stage for this war between the fallen angels and humanity. 
I think the other thing that 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 you wrote about that that I had not had not run across before but but obviously you know it's always been there I just didn't see it there, there was a fallen angel that ruled um the pre-flood world and I I wasn't that was that was, and and the name sounded familiar and I I I wasn't exactly I I don't recall running across that before. Want to fill us in a little bit about that? Sure. So just as we spoke about Ezekiel 28 uh describing Satan when he was, you know, the light bearer, when he was a righteous angel, there's another I call those chapters esoteric passages because that uh-huh. chapter is addressed to the king of Tyre, but it's really talking about the devil. It's it's uh, so the spiritual because it's ascribing traits that could never apply to a human. He was in Eden, the Garden of God. He was before the throne of God. He was before the cherubim, and this is obviously that could not be the King of Tyre. It's really that God is really directing that passage to the devil. There's a similar passage just three chapters later in Ezekiel chapter 31, but it's not addressed to the devil. It's addressed to this angel who's called the Assyrian. And he uh-huh. was the leader of the Genesis 6 rebellion. The entire chapter is really an address about the rise and fall of this fallen angel who ruled over the pre-flood world and ruled over all the fallen angels and Nephilim who are carrying on and having offspring of human women. And he describes his kingdom, that it was set up among the waters and the rivers gave him his strength, that he was strategically situated, and, it, and where it really confirms that it's talking about an angel is that again it says that the it's, it, it makes a metaphor comparing this this fallen angel to a to a mighty tree to a cedar of lebanon and uh-huh. which is already a, a hint biblically because we know that in amos chapter 2 god compares the nephilim king og to a cedar in Lebanon. So he was tall as a cedar in Lebanon. So it's already a connection to the Nephilim. And then it says that all the other trees in the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden, were jealous of this one king, the Assyrian. So now, we, and, and, so once it's referenced in the Garden of Eden, we know it's going back to talking about angelic beings. And so this, this angel was the preeminent angel ruling over this kingdom. And again, like the devil, it says that he was in his pride and in his arrogance, essentially, to see himself as God, he was then judged. And, of course, the judgment of the angels who sinned, Genesis 6, and the Nephilim was the flood. This was the reason uh-huh. for the flood. It was their, what they were carrying on with, which is the corruption of human genetics and the destruction, essentially, of the human race. And it's, it, so not only does it mention the Garden of Eden, it mentions the flood. It even mentions the specific punishment. It says that in the day when the floodwaters were abated, this angel and all the trees of Eden, so all the angels that, that rebelled with him in Genesis 6, these sinning sons of God who committed this fornication with human women, it says that they were dragged to the abyss, to the nether parts of the earth, the Sheol in Hebrew. And we know from the book of Jude in verses 6 and 7, as well as Second Peter chapter 2, it specifically tells us that the angels who committed this sin this sin of fornication were locked in the bottomless pit, the abyss, uh, under chains of darkness until the day of judgment, which is the great tribulation. So, so this angel, it's, it's, this is something that's not commonly discussed, 
but it's a really uh, amazing chapter. And in fact, Ezekiel 30, chapter 31 makes more references to the Garden of Eden than any chapter in the Bible. And so it's describing this angel who's, who, who was the, the leader of the Genesis 6 faction that committed that sin. Wow. So, so there was another question that, that you know, it, it, it's going to sound strange, but, I, you know, they, they talk about, you know, the um, sons of God and the daughters of man. Um, weren't there any female angels? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, there's a, there's a passage in, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 5, where Zechariah has a vision of, of the divine vision he's having, and there are women who actually have wings. They have wings like storks, and they're carrying this ephod to Babylon. So, you know, it's, to me, the Bible is telling us that there were female angels. That's, how, that's my I, – I try to be as literal with what the Bible is saying, and that's what he saw in his vision. And so um, now in the Genesis 6 account, we're not told of female angels taking husbands, but, but I think there's enough from the, from the chapter in Zechariah that's saying that there are female angelic beings. Well, yeah, but they wouldn't have messed up with women, theoretically. Um, right. No, they, so wouldn't, that... they wouldn't have. They wouldn't, yeah, exactly. No, they wouldn't have. So... But the the, no, the, just, the, well, you, the fornication you, you, that led to the Nephilim was carried on by the male angels with the daughters, the human daughters of men. It figures. Um, sorry. <laughs> 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 right, leave it to Amanda to mess up. Um, <laughs> I, it, it makes for a better read, I'm sure. Um, so it... it <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but it, it, to, to me, it just, you know, the, this is such a um, an intensive story, and, and it, it, makes, it makes great sense the way that you have presented it in the book. Um, I think that, 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 that I need, we need to sort of go into a little bit about, you know, we know that, that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, we we understand that that you know in, in the book you you talk about marrying is that is that merely just I mean they, they, during that time there was no no marriage ceremony so is it is it are are you saying that they just got together or are you saying that there was more of a committed type thing going on I mean I'm 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 a little confused because you know if you know right, did they, sure. it, so I, I think marriage mattered i think it was more of a claiming a woman and saying okay. this is my exclusive partner who no one else can have a relationship with i think and i think the reason why that mattered is again going back to kind of your original question about the creation of adam and eve that the angels witnessed this new creation, this new race, humanity, the first two, the, the first man. And then he was mm-hmm. given a wife. And we know that righteous angels, in God's order, angels are not permitted to marry. 
This is Jesus says this in the New Testament. And so it was the rebellious angels saw this gift given to Adam that he that Adam had the gift of marriage and the gift of reproduction. So they witnessed something. I think, of course, you know, this is what the devil does throughout the Bible. He's going to tempt you with something that has been withheld from you. And so I think uh-huh. I think the idea of marriage was something special to the angels. Because why, of course, because they didn't have it, right? And this is this is the challenge we all deal with. Right. We always, you know, the challenge is that the grass is always greener, you know, and that, so I think it did matter that they wanted to have this special bond that they were that was forbidden from them. And so I, but I do think it was more of claiming a spouse for, for yourself that no one else could have. And so I do think it matters. So I, so I do think it was an actual marriage. And additionally, again, as well as fornication, as having sexual relations, because they were not engaging in sexual relations in God's divine order. So righteous angels weren't having relations. They weren't having marriages. And so these were things that, of course, instigated the Genesis 6 sons of God to sin, that desire to have what they were what was not permitted to them. Well. But let's talk just a little bit about angels, because if I if I think of if if I'm trying to uh, in my mind when I think of an angel I think of an etheric being I I, I don't think of something that is corp, corporal or physical I think of something that is of a more etheric um, quality but but. In in your book, you're, you you basically are saying that angels can take on any form that they that they want. So if they're sort of like shapeshifters, really, kind of. Exactly. Yeah, they are. They, they are shapeshifters. They can take different forms, and I think that's a great question. And I think the Bible demonstrates that they have a physical body, and and there are numerous examples that I point to in the book. So, for example. In the book of Genesis, uh, God visits Abraham at his home with two angels, and they come to his home, and, and Abraham has his servants prepare food for them. They wash their feet, they sit down, they rest, and they eat food. So they had physical bodies, they had their feet washed, they had actual physical body and presence, and could consume human food. In the Psalms, it says that you know, talking about the Israelites when they were wandering the wilderness for 40 years and they ate manna, the Psalms say Uh man did eat angels' food. So not only can angels eat human food, the Israelites, when they're eating manna, that's actually food that angels eat in heaven. So our physiologies are similar enough that we can eat each other's food. There are also, of course, other examples of angels fighting and killing human beings, waging war against human beings, physically fighting. The prophet Daniel, when he encountered the angel Gabriel, he fainted in fear when he saw him. And Gabriel had to tap him on the shoulder and pick him up. And he fainted again. He had to pick him up again. So they have physical, a physical body. They have a presence. They can eat food. And they appear, they appear human. Oftentimes, they will say in the scriptures, I saw a man, the man Gabriel, in reference to an angel. The book of Hebrews tells us that even today, we can entertain a stranger that's actually an angel. So they look, they can, yeah. they can take the form of a human to the point that we don't even know we're speaking to an angel. And well, so we can entertain them unaware. Didn't two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know? A- a- absolutely. Perfect example. And, and, and not only. 
Yeah. yeah. And, so, and so the they, way it goes, the, the, the men there wanted to have relations with them. And they said, bring out the, when they went to Lot's house, they said, bring out the two men that we may know them. So meaning again, fornication, relations. So so, so the seed of, of angels, when mixed with human DNA, produced the Nephilim. Exactly. And, and there's a great chapter in First Corinthians chapter 15 that explains God's kind of genetic order and says that it talks about a contrast, a celestial body, like the immortal body of an angel with a terrestrial body, which is a human body, a, a, a mortal body. And it says, unto everything that God has given a body, he has given a seed. And, of course, seed in the Bible is referring to DNA, genetic material, reproduction. Uh-huh. And so it's telling us that angels have seed. They have that potential to reproduce. And, of course, that's – and then when you combine that with what Genesis 6 says, that they went in unto the women using very – the language of reproduction, that, it's, that you, when you put all these together, then it makes Genesis 6 make sense, that they have a body, they have a physical presence, and they actually have seed to reproduce. And, of course, that's what they fathered the Nephilim. And, and because their natural stature was so much larger, that's why – they produce giants? I think it's that their bodies, I think it's one, their stature, and also that they have greater power. I think it's actually the power that they have made their offspring so large, as basically much larger types of human beings, much stronger and larger human beings, because they have essentially they're superhuman. They have superhuman ability. And so I think that, that combination um, also with the fact that they were corrupted, right? I think that they, that there is, the, you know, the Bible tells us that fornication is a unique sin because it's a sin against the body. It's like no other sin. And that when you join it, so there's a corruption aspect to fornication. I think that also gave the nature, the depraved, the, the, the evil nature the Nephilim had. Um, that, you know, because the, test, the testimony of Genesis 6 is that once the Nephilim are born, the world is overrun with violence. And it says man's thoughts were only evil continually. So you have this supernatural body and ability of the Nephilim, uh, and then also this depravity and wickedness because they had a hyper, I think, you know, there's an important concept that I talk about in the book called, when it talks about begetting, that Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, that a spirit nature is passed on through generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, that's why the Bible says in Adam all die, that we received a spirit nature from our original parents, Adam and Eve. Once they sinned, they passed on that nature. So we were all born in sin. For a fallen angel, I think it's even more accelerated. And that's why, so, they, so that when they had offspring, their sin and their, their sinful nature was even more accelerated than the average depraved human like myself. So... All those factors combine to make the Nephilim kind of overrun the world and threaten the actual existence of humanity. They were sort of like a virus. Exactly. It was. This is. This is really about genetics. You know, when God uh, told Satan in Genesis three after Adam and Eve sinned, and God judged all three of them, He told the devil that his conqueror would be the seed the child, a child of a woman, the seed of the woman. And so that is 
where the devil put his focus on either preventing the birth of this child or corrupting this child. And the Nephilim, I called them, it was, it was like the devil's nuclear bomb against the human race because he could do a large-scale attack by just corrupting human genetics. And there's an interesting thing about Noah. When you get to the description of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, it says that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And that word perfect doesn't mean moral perfection. The Hebrew for that word is tamim, which means physical perfection. It's the same term that's used in, you know, in the temple sacrifices for a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, that it's supposed to be a lamb without blemish. That word is tamim. And so it's not, again, so what that meant was that Noah, he was a faithful believer in God, but just as important, he was perfectly human. He's one of the last few purely human beings on the planet who was a faithful believer in God, and that's why God chose him and his family to reboot and restart the human race after the flood. But when he was born, didn't his father think that it wasn't, didn't his face glow or something that his father was worried that that his wife had screwed around or something? Yeah, yeah. In, in one of the extra-biblical texts, uh, it, it says that he his face was glowing and his father questioned his wife, you know, who, who is the father of this child? Uh, and so, and that that's an account. And I, and I address, you know, the the extra biblical accounts about Genesis six. And I don't agree with that. I think that the, the, I think the biblical account is the most accurate and that Noah uh-huh. specifically was chosen because he did not have the Nephilim DNA uh, in his bloodline essentially. And this is really, and, 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 and we, when you look at so much of what happens in scripture, even after the flood, it's really, Many times it's a battle to the battle to attack that bloodline and God's and God's counter to defend this bloodline that was leaked from Messiah. It goes on for centuries after the flood. So this idea and, and they really when you look at the genealogies in the Old Testament and, and many times people, you know, it seems like some of the most like. The, the longest and hardest to read sections of the Bible are these long genealogies. It's like, why is this here? It's really uh-huh. God showing his record of preserving that bloodline until you get to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's God's record that he preserved it and can tell you every person in that lineage from Adam to Christ. I think, you know, so many people, you know, talk about, Oh, the bloodline, the bloodline, the bloodline. And I don't think people understand that the the important bloodline that really is spoken of is the bloodline of you know uh, Adam to Seth to to Jesus, rather than what happened after Jesus. It, it isn't it isn't the Jesus bloodline that's the important thing. It's the uncorrupted bloodline that created Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> that's that is the most important. Like I said, that's that's the, the entire first half of the Bible is really about that protecting that bloodline that would lead to the Messiah. The devil's goal was to stop God's plan of redemption for humanity. And if you think about it, it's really amazing that God will tell the devil things in advance. He told him how he was going to be conquered. He told him it was going to be a human child, and so that's And when you look at even certain events. 
again, after the flood, after, you know, when you look in the book of Exodus, the birth of Moses, that he, when he was a baby, you have Pharaoh, you know, this uh, a king who believes he's, he's a pagan king, who has a serpent, you know, has a clown with a serpent coming out of his forehead. His, what did he order? He ordered the execution of all the male Hebrew babies, had them thrown into the, into the river. So, again, it's, you see these plots that are instigated that specifically target male Jewish children. Again, it's attacking the bloodline. When Jesus was born, his parents had to flee and go to Egypt at the time of the census because, again, Herod ordered all the all the, the children of you know from the tribe of Judah to be executed. So this uh-huh. is again the devil had his sights set on destroying this bloodline, and we see a vision of this, of course, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation twelve, the apostle John has a vision of this woman with the the, the sun at her head, the moon at her feet, twelve stars over her, which is a representation of Israel. Joseph had that dream with the exact same symbolism this woman in genesis chapter 37 and it says that in john's vision the dragon comes to devour her child the man child born from israel is the messiah and so we see so he sees a vision of this was the devil's plan from the garden of eden was trying to prevent that bloodline from coming to fruition in the form of our lord jesus christ the messiah the savior being born and so that's you know, well, yeah, to, to go back to your point. That's the important bloodline. I mean, when you stop to think about it, you know, all the devil has to do is corrupt the bloodline, and it, it seems very easy initially. And then God wipes out all the nephilim, which you know would have helped to corrupt it even further. Um, but but something happened with the flood that that I find fascinating. The, the Nephilim drowned, but because they were um, immortal, because they were part part angel, um, their spirits did not die, and they became demons, right? Exactly, and that's a very important point. Oftentimes in churches and seminaries, on TV, sermons, the term demon and angel or fallen angel are just used interchangeably, but they're really uh-huh. not. In Scripture, there, there's a very distinct, there's a big distinction between the angels, the fallen angels, who obviously are angels in rebellion against God, and the demons. The demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And so I, I really, I devote a chapter to really explaining all the differences between angels and demons in the Bible because they're really not the same. There's not the same terms for them in Hebrew or in Greek in the Old Testament and New Testament, and they have very different attributes. Like we, we spoke about angels having bodies, being able to have a physical form. Demons don't have bodies. In fact, Jesus gave this example of saying that, you know, basically demons see a human body as a home. And they, that they want to live in, and then if you cast them out, they'll come back with seven more, and you're in worse condition. So, so they, they, they seek bodies to inhabit. Uh, angels are always given respect in the Bible, even, even fallen angels. You know, in the book of Jude, it uh-huh. says that the archangel Michael, that he was contending, he was, he was fleeing with God for the body of Moses with the devil. They both wanted Moses' body after Moses died. And it said that 
even Michael, an archangel, didn't dare to bring an accusation directly against Satan. So even even an archangel still spoke respectfully about the devil. So and whereas demons are called filthy, unclean, you know, they're they're spoken down to constantly throughout scripture. And so so those are just some of the differences between them. And so I really go into a lot more detail about that, but they're that they are definitely the deceased spirits of the Nephilim. And in fact, even in, in, in the Old Testament, it talks about that they also impersonate a lot of the idols that the uh, Israelites worshipped in the, in the Old Testament. And, and it even says that these were new gods, gods that newly came up. And that's because they were the gods that emerged after the flood, after they died and their spirits, of course, were wandering the earth, trying to corrupt humanity. Now, but, but also, demons can be killed. And angels can't. They're immortal. Angels so, are immortal. Yeah, and, 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 and they, they are immortal. And demons also, humans, we see, again, it wasn't just Jesus who could cast out demons. It, you know, the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Peter did. You know, the human mm-hmm. beings can have authority over demons to cast them out of someone's body. Whereas angels, that never happens with angels. And um, we even see an example with the demon-possessed man of the Gardarines in the book of Matthew who's possessed by thousands of demons. And they say they call themselves legion. And Jesus, they beg Jesus, don't send us to the abyss. They say, don't, they plead with him. And they're frightened of Jesus immediately when they see him. They say, don't send us to the abyss which, of course, the abyss is where their forefathers, the sons of God who committed fornication, where they were imprisoned. So they knew where their ancestors were imprisoned, said, don't send us there. And then Jesus cast them into pigs, into swine, 2,000 pigs. He puts demons into 2,000 pigs, and they immediately run into a river and drown. They die. And so it was almost like a repetition of the flood where they how did the Nephilim, the Nephilim die? They were drowned in the waters of the flood. And so they almost repeated the same thing and, got, and, and died. So are there, are there more demons in arid countries than there are in, in countries that have? <laughs> you know, that's a, that, that's a great, I guess you have great questions, Barbara. You know, it says that Jesus said that an unclean spirit seeks a dry place. So they actually do prefer arid climates. They don't want to be around water. You know, it's an interesting point. And I, and I love that when you start really taking the time to put this together, a lot of these little details start to make sense. Because, you know, many people might read that and say, why would Jesus even make that observation? But it's because it connects back to the flood. Yeah, that's uh, – I, I just it, – it's it feels like demons aren't – in, they aren't a spirit. Can't call them a spirit. What? What would? How would you define a demon? I mean, I understand the angels have a spirit and humans have a spirit, but my feeling is that the demons don't have a spirit. So, what is the energy that is that is um, fueling them? Yeah, you know, I think it's you know they they are outside of the creation they have a spiritual presence obviously you know but there's a reason that that jesus refers to them as 
unclean spirits. And it was like, because again, they were outside of God's genetic order. So, you know, they have, again, that, that, it's, you know, they're, when you think about it spiritually, they're a combination of a depraved angelic spirit and a depraved human spirit together. So they're really something something new, essentially, from a spiritual standpoint. So I, so I, I, I agree in the sense that, you know, they're ne- they have no access to heaven. Really, God wants nothing to do with demons. And so, but they still have energy and power. And they, they, you know, but even when they possess people, they can even give people power. They can give people strength. They can give people, you know, in the book of Acts, there's a woman who's able to, uh, she's the soothsayer. She can tell people's fortunes from the demon that's inside of her and speaking through her and using her, essentially. Uh, so I don't know a specific term for it, but they certainly have a, 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 a a fallen angelic or occult energy and power to them. They're almost like an egregore. And, right. And, and, and as soon as you recognize them, it gives them power. And the more you believe in them, it gives them greater power. So that, so that in, in essence, they take power and energy from being believed in and, um, you know, I, I still want to argue spirit here because spirit comes from God, and I, I, I don't know where this energy comes from, but you know, it's it's definitely out there. Um, one thing that 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 has always has always um, been a question in my mind is is that that saying in the Bible there were there were giants before the flood and then after, and um, I was absolutely delighted how how you brought the nephilim on the ark and back into the world to keep going and and working on itself uh, on on being fruitful and multiplying i think one of the biggest things about those early um those those early people when when they were told to be fruitful and multiply they didn't fool around. They lived 600, 900 years, and they multiplied. So, um, and also they had several wives, which is probably, you know, how they managed to multiply as much as they did. Um, sure. But, but the story of, of how, um, I, I, I was fascinated with the fact that um, while Noah was, was pure of, of lineage, and, and obviously his wife was. So they had three sons, one of which was Ham. And the three sons all had their wives with them. But Ham's wife had corrupted DNA. And that's how the Nephilim became, you know, made, made it through the, 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 the flood and how they, 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 they continued to breed after the flood is is that the only source of of um nephilim well, they didn't call them nephilim um after the flood they called them um oh it begins with an r raphaim raphaim thank you raphaim yeah sure so yeah so that so yeah you're absolutely right i i think the bible really supports that and i think there were three important points you already mentioned one uh obviously that ham 
was he, it was his wife that had the, the Nephilim DNA uh, that, that allowed it to basically essentially pass through the flood on the ark. But, you know, when you look at the genealogies early in Scripture, and like, as you mentioned, you know, the, you know, before the flood, the lifespans were much longer. You know, you had people who lived 800, 900 years. Methuselah lived 969 years. And, but they, and, they, and I think even the development of the body was different. I believe that men at that time, you know, kind of developed into men more like at 50 years old or 60 years old, essentially when they went through puberty, because you see that they had their first children at age 50, 55, 60 is when most of the first sons were born in these genealogies. But there's an interesting detail when you get to Noah. Unlike all his ancestors, Noah did not have his first son until he was 500 years old. And now why does that matter? Because we know from the biblical account that Noah went onto the ark when he was 600 when God instructed Noah to build the ark, he said he was going to give humanity 120 years to repent. So by the time Noah had his first child, he, he was already, God had already, the Nephilim were already overrunning the world. God had already told Noah to construct the ark. He'd been building it for 20 years. And so he had already known that the world was overrun and corrupted. So the odds once his sons were adults and ready to marry, of finding a woman who was purely human was minimal. You know, the, the Bible says, you know, three times as all flesh had corrupted itself upon the earth. And so then you combine that with Ham, who was wicked. We learn in later chapters he was a wicked son. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about the prophecy of the Messiah and the bloodline. He had no concern or respect for that. He would have no problem marrying a woman who was intermingled with the Nephilim DNA. And so that was a big factor in how, how we can establish those through him. And the third factor is that when you, and I, and I explain this in detail, that when you look at the, the Nephilim after the flood, the giants that are named, they're all traced back to Canaan who, of course, was the son of Ham. All of them, their genealogy can be traced back to Canaan, who was the forefather of the post-Diluvian Nephilim. Wow. And, and when Moses sent his, his, his uh, searchers out to check the land of Canaan, they, they said that um, they looked upon them as grasshoppers. So... The Canaanites were uh, obviously a, a tribe of giants, I would think. At least that's what it felt exactly. like. Exactly. Exactly. And it's really amazing, you know, when you see, you know, uh, what L.A. Marzulli calls the cosmic chess match, the back-and-forth strategy between God and the devil. So you have the Nephilim DNA make it through the ark, and you have Canaan, of course, who's, the, who's carrying this DNA as the, as the son of Ham. Where do all his descendants go to the promised land. You know, the Israel in the Bible is often called the land of Canaan. It was named after him. So all his descendants populated exactly where God wanted to put his people. 
And so, again, so this is, again, the devil taking steps to usurp and thwart his plan of redemption. And so, yes, you brought a great example, the, the, the giants. And the amazing thing about those 12 spies when they're sent to scout the promised land and they come back and they're scared is that this is roughly two weeks after the exodus. So the Israelites had just witnessed God personally intervening, supernaturally manifesting and bringing plagues, turning the Nile River to blood, sending frogs, lice, supernatural darkness, all these plagues upon the most powerful empire in the world. And then, of course, destroying the Egyptian army at the parting of the Red Sea. They witnessed God do all these things right before their eyes. And just two weeks later, they saw three Nephilim giants and 10 of the spies said, there's no way that God can bring us into this land. So it just shows you how powerful and how large these, these giants were, that they were that scared that they forgot all about those miracles and said, nope, there's no way we can take it. We've got to go back. God can't deliver us over these three, these three giants. Now, these giants weren't Nephilim. They were Raphaim. Raphaim. Yes, yes, the sons of Anath, they're called. And so their names, they were... Uh, Ahiman, Seshai, and Talmai, the sons of Anak. And, and that's, the, that's the, again, the, the, the beauty of the details that you get from these passages is that we're told, so they, they are the sons of Anak and they are Rephaim. And it's, it says that they were born of the giant. And so the Bible makes this distinction between the pre-flood Nephilim, who are, of course, fathered by angels, but the post-flood Nephilim, it says they were born of giants. So they were, again, giants begetting giants as opposed to angels fathering uh-huh. Nephilim after the flood, which never happened again. And then when you get to the book of Joshua, you find out that the sons, that these three giants, their father was Anak. They were the sons of Anak. Joshua tells us that Anak's father was the, Neph- was the giant Arba. And then we learned that Arba was one of the sons of Heth, and Heth was the second son of Canaan. So, again, it all traces back to Canaan, that he was the progenitor of these post-flood giants. And I, I even think that's why, you know, there's this, there's this very strange account right after the flood, right after the flood ends and Noah and his family get up the ark, there's this whole story about Noah getting drunk and falling asleep uh-huh. in his tent, uncovered naked. And it says that Ham saw his nakedness. Now, there's a lot of debate over what that means, that he saw his nakedness, and this is a big disgrace to Noah. And he, while he was asleep, and his other two sons, uh, Shem and Japheth, come in and cover him with a blanket. But it says that when Noah woke up, it says he knew what Ham had done to him. And so I won't get into what that happened there, but something clearly happened that was bad. But the interesting thing yeah. is that when Noah realizes this, he curses Canaan. He doesn't curse Ham. He doesn't punish Ham at all. He curses Canaan. And I believe the reason why he cursed Canaan is because Canaan was already showing signs that he had Nephilim DNA. Because Canaan had nothing to do with this sin, but yet he's the one who's punished for it. And so I think even uh-huh. that is telling us a little clue that there was something about Canaan that was very off and that Noah was comfortable cursing him instead of him who actually committed the sin in the tent. 
So, so that the fact that the 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 DNA is still alive and well um, would suggest that even though it's been over two thousand years or so, that 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 DNA is still within probably all of us. I mean, well, you I, know, I, yeah, I see your point, ahead. and I and I think you know, it's it's possible that the Nephilim DNA still exists today, but I think that I think that genetics work just like human genetics, where over time they it gets diluted and degrades, and so there are two things that happen. Of course, you have these large scale wars that are fought in the book of Joshua. It's all about a campaign between Joshua and Moses, 33 kingdoms that are basically Nephilim led kingdoms, giant infested kingdoms are destroyed. Uh So God, and and this is really the only offensive war that Israelites are commanded by God and God leading them into battle in the old Testament. God, and this is the reason why, God says in the land of Canaan, you know, to utterly destroy everything, the men, the women, the children, the animals, to kill everything because it's eradicating these genetics from the earth. And, um, of course, there are still some left over. There are remnants of giants left over. Of course, we know generations later we see the most famous giant in Scripture, Goliath, of course, who is killed by Uh David. And then when David becomes king, you have a, a couple of chapters where it talks about his, his elite soldiers, David's mighty men, kill the final pocket of giants that are left. And, um, and they're never mentioned again in Scripture. So I believe two things. One, a lot of them were just wiped out. But then even as you get to, say, Goliath, it says that he was six cubits and a span, which depending on how you measure a cubit, there are different, there's an Egyptian cubit, there are different measures of cubits. He's, he was anywhere from, you know, probably eight to nine feet tall. So, uh-huh. of course, if you saw someone who was nine feet today, you know, it would be jaw-dropping to see someone who's that big. But that's still probably a far cry from what the 12 spies saw generations earlier when they said we were like grasshoppers compared to them. So oh, even yeah. Goliath, and, I think, was a more deluded version of his ancestors. But even even archaeologically speaking, they have discovered giant skeletons. So giants, not necessarily Raphaim, but there have been giants in this land. And um, they all seem to have the same characteristics as the Bible describes, you know, two rows of teeth, extra digits and extra on their hands and feet. And the the reason I, I go into that and, and, you know, coming through DNA is that I have actually met people who who genetically in their family have six fingers on each hand and six toes and double rows of teeth and the and the red hair and the the um the light complexion. So so even though possibly the the, um, the 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 concept of evil is not there, the physical characteristics seem to have carried through and are still in place today to a certain degree. 
Sure, it's definitely possible. And there's, I mean, and there's definitely a lot of research out there. You know, uh, L.A. Marzulli, who I've gotten to know in the past few years, that's a, definitely a big area that he explores. And, you know, the, and think about the bones. You know, I, my area is much more in antiquity. And the interesting thing is that even in the ancient Roman Empire, you know, you have Roman historians like Tacitus who, you know, you know this so going back to the first century A.D. roughly, would write about that they would have displays of giant skeletons. Mm-hmm. And so, and they had no, of course, these, they, they had no connection to the Old Testament. You know, of course, they had their own pantheon of gods in ancient Rome, but yet they still found, wrote about giants that they had, you know, as almost like museum items. So uh, there is historical records that of, you know, beyond the time of the Old Testament of skeletons of giants being discovered. Yeah, I just, um, you know, I want to go back, you know, to, to Moses and, and um, Joshua's fighting. Um, you know, they, they were set, they set out to destroy all 33 of the kingdoms, and, you know, uh, they, did they, did they actually destroy all of them? It, it, it my memory is fuzzy, but it feels like they left one of them no, they didn't. They they let they let one of them. Um, they didn't destroy all of them. They only just they they let one slide by for some reason. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, so there were two two kind of uh, places where they stumbled. So there was you know there was the the one um, I guess tribe for lack of a better term the Jebusites who mm-hmm. kind of tricked. Uh, Joshua and his army to making a kind of a peace agreement. They pretended they were not from the area and <laughs> covered themselves in dirt and said they had eaten in days and had moldy bread and did this whole ruse um, to kind of get, to get, basically win peace with them. And then also mm-hmm. we're told in near the end of the book of Joshua that there were just literally areas that they just didn't conquer. You know, only the death of Joshua kind of it was kind of as that generation that fought all those wars died off. It was almost like the the zeal to continue the mission kind of died down, and so they didn't conquer all of the giants that were left in the land. And that's just explicitly stated. And which is why you have in the area of Gath, where Goliath is from, you have giants like Goliath centuries later, generations later, because they weren't actually eradicated, fully eradicated uh, in Joshua and Moses' day. Now, one of the other things that fascinated me was that <clears throat> when when Moses and Joshua were, were out conquering all of these lands, and um, and even um, yeah, well, all of them actually, uh, it God said He would go before them and He would you know pave the way, so to speak, so that all they had to do was clean up basically, and and God said, "Don't get in front of me." Because you know you'll get you'll go down with the rest of them, but you 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 also said in a number of places that it was the pre-incarnate Jesus that led some of those battles. Yeah, exactly. So this is uh, what you call a Christophany in theology, or just essentially, like you said, an appearance of Jesus before the New Testament in Scripture, and so. 
And often in the Old Testament, he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. And what you see is that this is Christ. This is Jesus waging literal war, fighting in many of the battles in the land of Canaan. It's the angel of the Lord, like you said, just sweeping through. And they say he disconfitted or he slaughters the armies of these Canaanites. And then it's the Israelite army behind him, like you said, just basically cleaning up the mess. And so over and over again, and this is an important um, kind of theme I highlight in the book, is that when it comes to the Nephilim, time and time again, God will personally intervene, come down from heaven and supernaturally intervene. So, again, it shows the magnitude of what was at stake here whenever the giants were involved. Anything that was going to bring this threat to humanity, God had repeatedly intervened to make sure and protect humanity. So when you look at these judgments, you know, because these are, these are, this is serious. These are serious acts of judgment by God. You know, the flood, you know, you're talking about who knows the population of the earth could have been in the billions and wiped out where there are yeah. only eight people left. Again, the, the, the millions, if not hundreds of millions of people living in the land of Canaan, and they're wiped out by God and the armies of Israel. But this is to show, again, that these weren't just harsh, irrational judgments from the angry God of the Old Testament. This was God pulling humanity back from the brink of destruction. That if this genetic contamination continued, there was no hope for humanity. We'd no longer even be human, and there'd be no redemption. And so... These, you know, these appearances, the pre-incarnate Christ is literally waging war and fighting the giants and defeating them. And I think this is why when you get to the New Testament and you see the demons, because once Christ is on earth at the New, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, there's demonic activity all over the place. The demons are running mm-hmm. around. They're, they're possessed people left and right. And the, the fascinating thing is that when they encounter Jesus, they immediately know who he is. They, they proclaim, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And they're scared to the death of him. And on, immediately, at least because they know this is, this is the angel of the Lord who killed a thousand, a thousand you know, 1,500 years ago. And now he's back. And so they say, have you come to, and they immediately ask, have you come to torment us or to judge us again? And they, they, they expect as soon as they see him, they think he's going to, oh, here we go again. Now he's going to send us to the abyss. He's going to send us to hell, and we're, going to, we're really done forever. And so it's, it's, so it's really an amazing picture of what God, you know, what God is doing. You know, in, in the book of Exodus, it says, our God is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Like, this, is a, this is a war that is being fought. And humanity, we are the prize. This is a war for us, that the devil wants us to worship him and, and be under his control, and God is trying to redeem us and reconcile his family that was broken by sin and wickedness. And so I really wanted to highlight this, this, this is a battle that God is fighting to save us and not just, you know, a judgment. And I think that this is why it's so important that churches and that teachers and people who are trying to learn about the Bible teach this understanding because it clarifies you know it's some of the biggest objections that people have when they want to challenge the bible they say, well, what, why would god send the flood why would god do something that's so harsh so cataclysmic why would god say these wars in canaan and say go in there and kill the women and children and i think if you don't understand 
what took place in Genesis 6, that this was all about this hybrid of be- these hybrid beings that were born who were corrupting human genetics and making us something other than image bearers of God. If you don't have that understanding, I don't think you can really adequately answer those questions. I don't think the, I don't think the wars in Canaan make sense. I don't, I don't even think the flood makes sense unless you understand what was really taking place in the fallen angelic realm. Well, <clears throat> I want to go back again. So... So the angel of the Lord was pre-incarnate Jesus. So you have here the Father and the Holy Spirit. And you have to wait a 1,000 or 1,500 years before you get the Son. So is this the beginning of the Trinity? Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, you know, Michael Heiser did, did a great essay about this, about the, you know, the, the, the kind of two gods or two Elohim uh, in the Old Testament, and how even you know you see brief examples of this, uh, even you know when the Israelites are being led through the wilderness, you know they had the pillar of cloud in the front and a pillar of fire behind them. So mm-hmm. who is who? How is there two? Because it's supposed to be God said, "I will lead you," and yet there's a there's one in front pillar and one behind them. So. And so I think this is another example of these wars. You see the angel of the Lord who's appearing before the Israelite armies and fighting physically in front of them. It, we're getting a glimpse into the Trinity, right? Because we know in the New Testament, Jesus says very definitively, no man hath seen the Father except the Son. So, no, so, if any, so anytime you have an appearance of God in the Old Testament, it's the Son. It's not God the Father. So we're getting a little glimpse into the Trinity in these wars that are being fought by the angel of the Lord. Well, it's it's interesting because in, in many places the uh, the angels are named, and yet yes. the angel of the Lord is not named. So, Correct. Um, He's not named. And, and there's an interesting account, too. So, And there are a couple of things about that. So on one hand, God, when he first, before they entered the land of Canaan, God said, I'm going to send my angel. And he said, obey him. And he says that he has the power to forgive. So, of course, only God can forgive. So when he, get, he, he identifies the angel and he says, I put, I put my name in him. So, again, going to the name idea, God said, he said about the angel of the Lord, only I have put my name in him. So, again, he's blinking that they're, in some way, they are united. They are one, right? And so, of course, we know oh, the Lord our God is one. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. So, it's, it's already giving us a hint of this. And then there's an interesting passage uh, in the book of Judges where at the birth, when, when the birth of Samson is announced, to Samson's mother and father, you know, the angel of the Lord appears before them and says they're going to have this child who's going to, of course, have this supernatural power. Samson had the supernatural strength. And his mother asked, what is your name? And he said, it's a secret. <laughs> and so, again, he said, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and so <Yeah>. it's uh, <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So you raise a really good point that you're right. The other angels are named. We know that there's Gabriel who appears again. We're told his name. We're told an archangel's Michael's name. And so, but where the angel of the Lord, we're never told his name, even though he has the name of God in him. We're not told what his name is, of course, until the New Testament. Now, didn't. 
didn't he appear? I love the pre-incarnate. I've not. This is something I've not run across before. Didn't he appear on um, Matt Herman uh, to Moses? Didn't Didn't Moses meet with? Um, yeah, sure. The burning he, bush. So the angel of the Lord was in the burning yeah. bush. And, and the interesting thing about that passage, because that's Exodus chapter three, when you get to verse four, it says. Because, of course, Moses is having a dialogue, and it says, and God said to Moses. So it interchanges angel of the Lord and God, speaking from the bush. So, again, that's, again, another biblical small detail that's telling you this is not an angel in the sense we normally think of that are subservient to God and carry out, you know, different deliver messages or do different tasks for God. This is God, but being called the angel of the Lord. Yeah, another great example. So, so if if um, you're looking at a hierarchy, you have your your archangels, and then you have this angel of the Lord, and then you have the Lord. So, so, so there is, but but it isn't even a hierarchy if the angel of the Lord and and, and the Lord are the same. It, exactly, and I'll give you yes, and I and I. I, I go into that exact concept in the final Nephilim. So I, I try to, I want to try and explain, because it's a very hard to understand, you know, that Jesus prays to God, but he is God. The God said, God said, I'm going to send my angel, but they're, but they're the same. They're equivalent. So I, I, I get in the sequel to judgment of the Nephilim, I get into how that can actually work. And I think there's an interesting explanation. I don't want to get too off track, but believe it or not, I actually think that quantum physics has a very good explanation of how that takes place. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was, um, you know, I I had a lovely time with this book for sure. Um, The other thing that, that, um, that, and I'm going to hop around here, but but people are used to that with me. Um, (laughs) I think what what um what what I the other place where you know I I my spidey sense went, went off is when you talked about where the angels came into this in into into this realm into the garden of Eden they came through a, and your your word a portal um is to me, a portal is a, is is possibly an opening to another dimension. It's you know, um, I, I don't think it's a you know I, I don't think it's a an opening to a spaceship by any means. But you use the word portal, and that 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 was that was an unusual place to find the word portal. Not not if you're in metaphysics, but in this you know in this context, absolutely. So. It, it appears that they they enter the earth realm in certain places. They don't just fall from the heaven and light wherever they want. They have to enter into this realm through a portal. Yes, exactly. And so the the place uh, that I identify in the book that I believe there's a the portal exists between the heavenly and earthly realm is at the Jordan River. And in, in fact, I call the Jordan River in the book the Area 51 of the Old Testament. But there are so many supernatural events that take place specifically at this river. And so the first thing I discuss is 
the name, the etymology of Jordan. And so the, the, the term Jordan in Hebrew, Yarden, means the place of their descent. And so certainly in Hebrew culture, and especially in ancient Hebrew culture, names had great significance. And so right from the start, the name of this river is indicating something happened here that involved a descent that took place here. And then when you start looking at some of the events at the Jordan River, it just adds even more evidence. So just a few examples of some of the things that took place there. You can, uh, first off, you have... Uh, Jacob, he has, of course, this vision. He's in Bethel, due west of the, of the Jordan River, and he has a vision, a dream of this ladder with angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth on this ladder. Again, this is due west of the Jordan River. The prophet Elijah, uh, when he was fleeing from Jezebel, he went to the brook Sharif. God told him to go to the brook Sharif. That is a brook of the Jordan River. And there, birds, ravens, who are carnivorous birds, delivered meat and bread to feed him. <laughs> under, clearly under divine control, they delivered food to him to keep him alive every day. When Elijah was later taken up to heaven, essentially raptured to heaven but with the chariots of fire, it was at the Jordan River, and we're specifically told these chariots went up and took him up to heaven at the Jordan River. The other interesting thing, too, when we talk about the wars of Canaan and the, and the travel, the 40-year wandering through the wilderness, God, you know, when the Israelites left Egypt in the Exodus, they actually, if you look on a map, before, they're, before they have to do the wandering in the wilderness, before they're punished, when God's first taken them to the promised land, they march around the entire nation. They go south all the way around the border of Israel to the eastern border and go north. All they do a loop. Rather than just entering right by the Red Sea, they go all the way around and enter specifically at the Jordan River. And even when they initially cross, it's not as, as popular as the parting of the Red Sea. God made the, the Jordan River part when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. It parted just as the Red Sea did, and he instructs them to do this kind of ritual where they bring 12 stones and place them on the bottom of the floor of the Red Sea and then place 12 stones on the shore, I'm sorry, of the Jordan River, and then place 12 stones on the shore of the Jordan River at this place called Zarephath, or the place of the crossing where they cross the Red, where they cross, I keep saying the Red Sea, I'm sorry, where they cross the Jordan River. Uh, another thing that happened was uh, uh, Naaman, the Syrian military commander who had leprosy, he goes to see the prophet Elisha to ask how he can be healed, and he says, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And he dips himself seven times, and there he's healed of leprosy, which, of course, in the ancient world was a death sentence. It was incurable. And then I talk about the most famous example at the Jordan River is the baptism of Jesus Christ. When he is baptized by John the Baptist at the Jordan River, and as he's baptized, it says that the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And God says, the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And people could audibly hear God the Father speaking from heaven. So you have the full opening, the veil being pulled back between the heavenly and earthly realm. And people hear God speaking, 
And here, of course, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at the Jordan River, the place of their descent. So, I, and then there are many other examples of angels manifesting by rivers. So I believe that this was the location where the Genesis 6 angels entered the human realm to take human women as wives. And I believe that's why it received that name in antiquity as the Jordan River, the river of their descent. Well, I think what confuses me in that being spirits and spirituals and angels and and you know i i'm i'm not sure i buy they have wings but, but maybe they, maybe some do but but especially with ezekiel and his wheels and and um you know enoch i mean there it 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 sounds like they're you that they they need a mode of transportation and i don't think they actually do so is is the 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 suggestion of a mode of transportation just something that that um, people of that day felt that there had to be a mode of transportation? They couldn't just you know blink in and blink out like Star Trek, or um, you know it, it it confuses me that they're talking about especially the wheels and the wheels um, that that there's not a need for a a ship when you're talking about angelic and divine energy i agree I, I actually agree with you i think that for angels they can just travel on their own and appear whether they're flying you know the book of daniel makes a reference to an angel actually flying to him which is the angel gabriel so i, I don't think they need transportation however in the case of god when god is appearing because in, in that chapter in ezekiel it's, just that it's God that's actually speaking to him with these creatures and the wheels and the wheels that have eyes. And, and, and there are a number of passages that say that the, the, the cherubim, which I believe are creatures, that they're heavenly creatures, that they, who, and winged creatures, that they actually carry the throne of God, that God's throne is carried by the cherubim. And so it's almost that God uses that method of transportation, but the angels, I don't believe, need to. And I think, you know, Ezekiel chapter 1 is a really, that description is, it's a very complex chapter. But I believe the, the wheels and with the eyes and that, that's, that very kind of bizarre description is talking about these heavenly realm creatures as opposed to the angels like Gabriel, like, Mar- like Michael, who have more of a human form. I believe these are creatures that actually exist. It's like we have creatures on earth. There are creatures in heaven. And God uh, uses them when he is traveling, um, but almost exclusively. Because you've never seen the example of an angel riding on a cherubim or in a wheel within a wheel. It's, it's always God himself that's speaking. And like it says in Ezekiel chapter 1, and he sees this several times, and he says that it's God speaking to him on top of this kind of vehicle and creature combination. I have a thought on all of that. And and my philosophies, I warn everybody, I can give you my philosophy today, but tomorrow it may be different, so don't book it. Um, That's okay. It seems to me that generations of people from time to time require a show in order to get their attention and that 
in that particular time frame, the show was necessary to create the importance of the message that was being given. You know, if 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 Ezekiel had just met somebody under a tree and talked to him, he wouldn't have had it wouldn't have had the the, the impact on him as much as the show of the being taken and and shown the different levels of heaven and paradise and all of that. Um, it just seems to me that 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 culture of that time required the show in order to get the import of the message across. I think you're absolutely right, and I think there's several. I think you're I think you're totally correct, and I think there are many examples of that. Right? You, you when you look at the that you know in Exodus at Mount Sinai when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God's in this cloud and there's thunder and lightning and they say God's voice is so uh, intimidating and so frightening. They said, we don't even want to hear it lest we die. They're just hearing God yeah. speak. It, you know, the, 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 the people thought they were going to die just from, just from hearing his voice. And so I think you're right. I think the show is there to get people's attention. And I think also, you know, this was a competition. You know, when you talk about, you know, the titles of God, when they say uh, God most high, you know, Abraham calls God the Most High God, El Elyon. It's it's asserting that he is at the top of the gods. You know, the Bible calls him the God of gods. So you have lots of fallen angels and demons masquerading as gods all over the place. You know, and God acknowledges uh-huh. it. God even says that he calls the heavenly host, the, the wicked heavenly host, he says that they, you shall... Do not worship them. So he's, the implication is that they're looking to be worshipped. And so I think a part of it also is God is demonstrating that no one is do, no fallen angel is going to do what I'm about, going to show you right now, what I'm going to manifest right before your eyes that you can see to give that, to make that impression, to show the import, like you said, and to validate, you know, and that's, that's the amazing thing uh, about the Bible. You know, one of my favorite chapters is, is is Isaiah 1 where God is basically for six fifteen verses laying out the sin after sin of Israel saying you've, you've basically worshipped false gods, you've been unjust you mistreat the poor, you steal from each other, all these things and then says come let us reason together. That God under, you know, God knows our frailty as humans, and he wants to reason with us. God will try to appeal to us, and I think that is a major appeal for Ezekiel's soul with God saying, look, I am God. I'm going to show you right now something you've never seen before that's going to really blow your mind and make that impression it, it, to show you I am who I say I am. It, it's, like, it's sort of like a rock concert with all the pyrotechs, you know, and, and you know, I, I'm, I'm I think that, that in that time, it required that much to get the point across. But I agree. God, God to me does not see. I, I mean, I, I, you know, he's smart. He understands his audience and 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 his people and and you know who he's trying to guide. And you know, it's over time he's had to use different ways of making his points. Certainly. Um, and and so you know when you think of of you know uh satan you know thinking it it would be a piece of cake to just you know um corrupt the dna i'm sure well 
he obviously knew what DNA was, but had another name for it, I'm sure. But let me just corrupt them so that they there can't be a pure a pure bloodline, so that a Messiah cannot be born. Once once that was taken off the the the, the table, so to speak, and once Jesus was born. Um, you know, he had to he had to work in other ways to to get rid of Jesus, and um, it, it, and and I still feel that that uh, you know we're not looking at the, the human life. You know, our our, our lifespan is is conceivably 120 years if if we don't wreck our bodies, but but you're, we're talking thousands and thousands of years that this battle has been going on and it's still going on to this day um there are people that think that we're at end times i don't believe that but but you know i I think we've got a ways to go before we're going to get there but but they have all the time in the world because they're immortal and and you know it's it's amazing to watch the play that that i've often said that that i think we are uh, as humanity, we are pieces in a in a game, and we don't even know what the game is, but we're being moved about according to the game and the rules of the game. Um, Satan is still alive and well, and so all of the fallen angels that that you know are not the corrupt ones that that played with humanity, they're all still waiting, you know, to come back and and you know do greater damage. Um, I, I found it fascinating that, that Satan did not seem to be, while he was cursed to be on the planet, it it he, he it feels like he's on the planet, not in the planet. In other words, he's not in the nether regions. He's he still can talk with God. He still can have conversations with him, and 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 I feel that occasionally they do. Exactly, and and that's a very good point because it's a common misperception that the devil is in hell, kind of in charge of hell, tormenting people, and that's that's not the case. The devil, from the biblical account, has never been in hell actually, and it says yeah. you know that he, uh, and yet he he can roam the earth, going to and fro on the earth, and can still access heaven. We see this in the book of Job in chapters one and two. That the devils of the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, the same angels that we see in Genesis six, they were they appear before the throne of God. It says, "And the devil was with them." And God asked the devil, "Where have you been?" And he says, "Going to and fro on the earth. Just, I'm traveling around, looking for who he can destroy and corrupt." And so, uh, and, and then in Revelation, when uh, when the devil's finally cast out in the in the great tribulation, it says that the it calls him the accuser of the brethren, who accuses believers before the throne of God day and night. So he's spending a good deal of time in heaven trying to prove to God how corrupt we are. And really, that's, I, I, I love the book of Job for that reason, that we're given this picture of what's going on in heaven that we don't really see anywhere else in the Bible, that God and Satan are speaking. And God saying, and Satan essentially challenging, saying, hey, you know, Job doesn't really love you. He doesn't really believe in you. It's only because you've blessed him with so much, you know, so much wealth that he worships you. If you take it all away, he'll, he'll, he'll never worship you. And they get into this kind of contest, but this is what's taking place in heaven. And so, yeah, no, the devil is very much free and roaming and still trying to prevent God's plan of redemption. Yes, it's, it's it, again, it's, it's like an, an amazing 
game that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. It's a it's a tug of war, and um, it, it's it's really phenomenal because you know there are times when you're pretty sure Satan's doing really well, and then suddenly it goes back, it swings back in the other direction. And um, when you look at at the, the times on the planet where, where there has been, you know, just mass destruction all over the place. When you look at the atom bomb and what happened in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Satan had to have a hand in that one. Um, so, so you know, it, it's the presence is here. You can kind of feel it, and energetically you can feel it. When, when there is, um, if one is sensitive to the energies of the earth and what's going on, you can feel when when something is going very wrong and and you know and then when something is going very right you can you you can feel that energy within yourself if you are if you become sensitive enough to it and and of late um th- there has been you know to to borrow a ter- a term from a movie and there has been a disturbance in the force for sure over the last <laughs> month or so um, it feels like <laughs> Satan has got a, a couple of pulls on the old rope here, um, which which I'm sure will will equal out eventually. Um, but this is a game. This is it's not a game, but it's a match. And I do feel this match is going to go back and forth for centuries, maybe even thousands of years yet again. Um, but I, the, the the one thing that the that, that I, w- I found fascinating, um, the the initial place where God chose to put um, the Garden of Eden is that that place where the portal is, where the angels came down, and it it has a, a direct correlation to and connection to um, Plato's account of Atlantis. Do you want to share that with us? Oh yeah, absolutely. So you know, and that's and that's what I love also about going back and looking at the just the treasure trove of ancient writings uh, from you know from the church of you know, pe- you know people who are very close to the time of the disciples, if not just decades after. And you'll see that they made an immediate connection. Justin Martyr, for example, who was you know writing in 125 A.D., so very close, just generations from the time of Christ on Earth that the basis for the mythology of 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 Greek of ancient Greece was from Genesis 6 and so i kind of show a a comparison between the account of Genesis 6 and what we see in Ezekiel 31 with the Assyrian and the account of Atlantis written by Plato and it's amazing you see the comparisons of course you have first of all you have the the creation of Atlantis was done out of as a gift from marriage. So you had Poseidon, who was a god, who fell in love with a human woman. And they married and had five sons, and Poseidon created Atlantis as a place for them to live, for their kingdom. And you start looking at some of the details that Plato puts in there that they had an abundance of minerals. Well, when you see the creation of the Garden of Eden by God, and again, God... God created the garden himself. It was a divinely designed place on earth. Poseidon created Atlantis himself supernaturally. 
facility, and then, then you'll also see in the description of the Garden of Eden that it had minerals. It had gold, bdellium, onyx, and other precious minerals. They had every kind of animal in Atlantis, according to Plato. Well, of course, we know in the Garden of Eden, the first task that Adam was given was to name all of the animals, who obviously God brought to him to, to observe them and name them. They talk about the rivers. The waters of Atlantis are what made it very strategically powerful. Well, again, we see that there were four rivers that ran through the Garden of Eden. We're told that specifically. And in Ezekiel 31, when it discusses the Assyrian, the angel who ruled the, the antediluvian world, it says repeatedly that it was the waters and the rivers that helped give him his power. It's exactly what Plato wrote about Atlantis. And then, of course, you get to uh, the corruption of both societies, that Plato specifically writes that after Poseidon fathered hybrid children, the demigods with his wife, these half God, half human hybrids, that other gods started doing this. And this proliferation of this intermingling between the godly realm and the human realm led to wickedness, to greed and violence in Atlantis, and eventually it was destroyed by a flood. And so exactly mirroring the account of Genesis 6, where the proliferation of the Nephilim filled the earth with violence. All men's minds were on evil continually, and of course, God sent the flood judgment to destroy them. And so the parallels there are just startling. And of course, you know, obviously, the the Plato is predate. You know, the the Old Testament predates Plato by you know almost a millennium. So, uh-huh. so yeah. So so I I believe that the the count of the lands was a complete take, just their take on what took place in the days of Noah. And I also even included in the book, I have actually a, an image, uh, two images. So I took an image uh, from a, a, a 19th century uh, book that contained the account of the Critias, which is, which is where Plato wrote the account of Atlantis. And there's an okay. illustration that the author made based on Plato's description. And essentially the quote unquote island of Atlantis was really five islands in concentric, in concentric circles with water in between each circle leading to the center kingdom in the middle. And that's how Atlantis is described by Plato. And then I have above that an image uh, of an ancient monolith called Gilgal Raphaim, the wheel of the giants, which is located in Israel. And it essentially was built on a hill with 45 tons of basalt stones and lo and behold, they're arranged in that exact same pattern of five concentric circles with a small temple or shrine in the middle. And this monolith is actually older than Stonehenge. It's over 5,000 years old. And it basically looks exactly the same as the, it was, as the description of how Plato described Atlantis. Wow. Well, I think it, it's also to me fascinating in that where that initial portal is where the garden of eden was where the angels come and go from um that's where the giants decided to settle that's that's where the, that was that's the promised land and exactly. um i don't i don't think that that was any um accident at all 
I think the the, the devil, you know, it, it, not to make his last stand, but to make a stand. And um, while they they were able to conquer it and all, they were overthrown. They were over they were overrun eventually over time. And <clears throat> I find it fascinating that even today, that is an area of the country that is constantly at war. Absolutely. And when you think about it again, you know, we spoke about in the beginning of the of our discussion that in Ezekiel 28, when the devil was in a good, a righteous role serving God, it said, thou has been in Eden, the garden of God. Thou is upon the mountain of God. So, so the devil knows the location. He knew. So, so it, it wasn't like he had to guess where he should put the giants. He knew exactly where God would want his people to be. In the promised land, he knew where that territory was to make sure Canaan and his descendants were there uh, after the flood. And so, again, it's no surprise, to your point, that here we are 2,000 years after Christ, and that area is still in constant contention. The forces of the devil and evil are still battling for control of that area, God's holy mountain. And I think that will be the case until the Great Tribulation. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, it's just it, it's it's the fact that 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 there's a portal there, and isn't it interesting that while it is today a, a place of of constant war and 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 bloodthirsty stuff, that's where the angels came through. That's that's where right. God came through to create the Garden of Eden, and and. To to have it be the same place where 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 peace and majesty and beauty started, um, it it's it doesn't make sense. I mean, what they're fighting over now is you know rocks. I mean, at one right, time it yeah. may have been a beautiful place, but 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 now it's it's like you, you know why would anybody want to live there? Exactly, right? and, and so, but, but you know, but the spirits know. You know, that's the thing. It's you know, it's all about you know when you talk about inspiration. What spirit is leading people to have these ideas? And so, the spirits know the greater significance of this territory, of this land, and that's why the wars just continue. You know that that, that this is what you know. It's all, and you think about even Armageddon. You know, we talk about. Armageddon, people say, where is Armageddon? What's, where is it about to take place? Is it at Megiddo? Is, where is it? it? You know, if you look in the book of Joel, chapter 2, it says, multitudes in the valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's in Jerusalem. That's where, this is what, this is where the, the ultimate confrontation between the devil, Antichrist, God, the, the Christ, is going to take place. It's all for control of this land. And I think, and to your point, it looks very barren and rocky now. Uh, I think at one time it was much more beautiful and lush, and I think it will be that way again. But it, right now it doesn't look like much. It's not much to write home about from a, a, a purely, you know, uh, as, a, as a topography. But it, I mean, if I, I was going to, if I was going to fight over territory, I, I mean, I'd go for Hawaii. I mean, you know, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> or, or Florida. You know, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's kind of like the devil has very bad taste. 
but but it it, it you know you, you 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 get you get to this place and you kind of think okay this material is phenomenal and and you know I have to recommend your book again to everybody because um the judgment of the nephilim is 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 a, a wonderfully informative book and I don't understand why why this material isn't taught in churches I mean this is nothing that you're going to get it, it in Bible study or in church what why have the churches not gone into this material as thoroughly as you have uh well first of all thank you I appreciate the recommendation and yeah uh, sadly very very sadly uh when you look at the history of how you know the church teaches these concepts once you get to the start of the 20th century there was a big move in the early 1900s to get away from really the super, many of the supernatural aspects of the Bible, basically just abandoning this altogether. So, so you had generations of pastors being taught in seminaries that, oh, the sons of God in Genesis 6, they were just human men, and these were just uh, these were good men who, were, who dated bad women, the naughty women in the neighborhood, <laughs> and they had giants as their offspring. That's the, that's the kind of the story that many pastors have been taught for, for generations. And so, uh, and so, and then now, of course, you know, the modern church, you know, many churches, you know, many churches are really teaching, uh, they're preaching in a way that's really very uh, person-focused. It's just about, you know, three steps to make your life better, to improve your marriage, to get healthier, and things like that. They're much more focused on you rather than focusing on Christ and what the Bible is revealing. And so finding teachings today about Genesis 6, the supernatural, or even end-time prophecy, it's going to be very, very rare because it's not very marketable. And unfortunately, a lot of the church is much more focused on, you know, just appealing to people uh, and trying to solve earthly problems or fighting a, a culture war or battling, you know, people rather than following what God says, that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, powers, and spiritual wickedness in high places, that that's who the real fight is with. And that's what we need to focus on and put on our spiritual armor to wage warfare in uh, that way and as opposed to against other people. And so, uh, uh-huh. unfortunately, um, we've really gotten away from that. When you, if you just take a, go a little bit farther back into the 19th century, this was a common teaching in the church. And certainly in the early church, this was the, the total understanding. And, and it's, it's sad that as we have more technology and the Bible is easier to access, we're not teaching it accurately. And we're leaving a lot of this stuff off the table. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've noticed though that the the element of um, of uh, people claiming that there there is demonic possession and that that you know you have to you have to exercise. Um, I, I I'm fearful that in and, and this is just my opinion, everybody. This is not in writing any place, but. There are so many um, people going around getting exercised, and to my feeling, while I do believe that that I'm sure that demonic possession does occur, I, I do believe it does occur, but for the most part, a lot of times when people claim they're demonly possessed, it's that they have more emotional problems than they just don't want to face, and and 
you know, it's easier to say I have a demon inside of me than I've made some bad choices and I really need to reform myself. So, you know, there's there's a lot of this going on today, and and um, exorcism is is becoming more and more a, a case. You know, it, it's out there so much more than it than it used to be, and I'm I'm worried that people are being talked into saying that they've been possessed when they actually haven't been. They just need to take responsibility for their lives. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And a lot of times people blame demons for their sin. They say, oh, I have a demon that's making me commit a sin. And wherever. that's not a biblical teaching. So that, uh, our, you know, we, we lust, you know, our sin, is comes, our sin comes from our own lust, our own mind, our own desires that we have to counteract with the Holy Spirit. And I think if that's, that, that's, and again, when we think about the supernatural realm, there's a good side to it. There's a good side of the supernatural that we have the Holy Spirit that we can call on. And it says the Bible says that we have to fill ourselves with the Spirit. Don't quench the uh-huh. Spirit. I mean, don't do things. Don't don't put out the fire of the Spirit in your in your body. And how do we do that? By filling ourselves up with other things all the time and not spending time in the Word, studying, praying to God, spending time with God, living for God. That is how we increase the Spirit in us, which can then give us that peace that we need, that peace that passes all understanding, that can take away our stress, that can get our mind clear of all the anxiety of the world. And that's the, and again, when you have teaching that's earthly, well, our focus is going to be earthly. Whereas if you're teaching uh-huh. and reminding the church that we're, at a, we're in a spiritual battle, then our mind's going to be on heavenly things. And too much time is spent of Christians being taught to focus on earthly things, their earthly problems. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting a good marriage, wanting things good for your family, wanting a job. I, I, I support praying for all those things. I pray for it all the time. So, I, you know, I pray yeah. for my marriage all the time. There's nothing wrong with that, but we can't lose sight of the bigger picture. Everything has to have its order and priority, and Jesus gives us our clear priority. Our first and first foremost mission is a spiritual one helping to save souls, to point people to Christ for their salvation, and then in our own lives, making sure that we are protecting ourselves and our loved ones from the spiritual enemies. And so we have to keep that perspective, and I think that's how we can, I think that helps how us do you, to alleviate anxiety. How do you tell the difference between someone who has just made very bad choices because they've been manipulated and someone who is actually possessed by a demon how do you tell the difference yeah Yeah. so i think this is one area where you know i I talk a lot about how we get glimpses into things in scripture well when it comes to demon possession we we get pages of evidence you know we have you know we have lots there are very we're told specifically that people when people are demon possessed how they're acting again you know the man at the garderine they said he had he was in chains he's breaking out of chains he was cutting himself he was, you know, so the behavior and the things that the signs of demon possession are very clear in Scripture. And it's not just someone's not feeling well or they're having anxiety or they're upset about something. Their behavior is, is quite irrational or it's something that's bordering on supernatural. Like the, the woman who was possessed by a demon who was a soothsayer, she was demonstrating supernatural ability. So again, it's, so I think that 
I go by, well, let's just look at the examples in Scripture, because you can find many. And you also uh-huh. have instances where the demon is clearly speaking through the person. You had the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts who tried to cast out a demon, and the demon says, I know Paul, but I, but I don't know who you are. <laughs> if they mention Paul's name. So basically they say, we're not leaving. And they attack yeah. them. The, the demons, that man attacks them, they run them out of the house and strip their clothes off before they even leave the house. So again... We see lots of examples in Scripture. So the Bible gives us an abundance of evidence of this is how someone acts when they're possessed by a demon. And I think it's important that, you know, and and Jesus, again, gives, Jesus speaks in detail about demon possession. So the Bible really gives us all the material we need to know to say, okay, this seems like demonic possession as opposed to someone who's just kind of in depression, which, again, happens Uh to all of us at times. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not a demon. Yeah, I, I think sometimes people are convinced that they have a demon, and it's a great excuse to behave badly. And right. and you know, I, I and I'm not saying there isn't demonic possession. I I do believe there is, but I don't believe it's as excessive as people are suggesting it. I mean, you know, we can we can get we can get lost in in depression, and we can get lost in bad choices, and we can get lost in having done horrible things, but the reality is, you know, we knew what we were doing. You know, we may have been forced into doing something, but we knew what we were doing. And, and But I think that that there is a lot of this negative energy, this demonic energy, is present today. And, and you can see it. You know, um, it, it's out there, and it's it's more of an energetic as opposed to a person. It's It's places where... Horrible things are happening that shouldn't be happening. It's it's it seems as though it's a, an energy that permeates places in a negative way, so that everybody there becomes depressed, becomes negative, becomes absorbed within that energetic. And um, I would say that that you know we certainly have battles on our hands, and there's certainly. Um, this is not a time to sit back and rest on your laurels if you happen to have any. Um, and, and so <laughs> yes. that, you know, sometimes my laurel garden is not as good as it used to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, I, I have to go water my laurels because they're feeling a little <laughs> bit wilted. <laughs> um, yes. But but I, I think that, that while the churches don't, teach this it's important for people to educate themselves it's for, it's important for people to pay attention to what's out there it's important for people to seek out this information so they can use it to to sort of create their their own spiritual armor um and and, and it, exactly. it, it it's it's sort of like you know, frankly, being a jewelry person, I'm I'm all for getting Aaron's breastplate because it sounded like there were great diamonds and, and everything. <laughs> not, not sure that would work with communicating to God, but it sure would be fun to have you know all those stones yeah. in one place. Yeah. Um, but but you know, if you can create a symbol that represents that to you in your life, I think you should do that. And and you know, it doesn't have to be gold and silver and diamonds and stuff like that. So that's fine for you if you have the money for it. Don't you know? I don't want to right, discourage right. that. But sure, but, sure. But it, it's it's. I think everybody in in a way should have some form of of 
not necessarily physical, but, but certainly an etheric form of spiritual armor that they can put on and say, okay, I'm protected. Now I should be able to, to act more cohesively with my spirit energy than with my physical energy that is worried about so many other stupid things that really don't have any bearing on my spiritual evolution and development. I, I think that most people today are so locked into the physical that they forget that there is a spiritual. And, and we have to have that balance inside of us. We have to have the physical and the spiritual. I mean, if we're out of balance, then we're just going to go in circles. It can, and it can lead us in a dark path. So first of all, I, I agree with you. You know, that's, that, that is the complexity of the human existence when you are a born-again believer. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your spirit uh-huh. is renewed in Christ. But your flesh is still your old sinful flesh. And so it's literally a battle taking within you. And when you look at the, the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6, you know, it talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, your feet shod with the gospel of peace, the sword that is the, the word, the spirit of God, the shield of faith. When you take those things, when you take the time to think and meditate and think about, okay, I need to have these things. God, give me these things today. Grant me these things. It's telling you, you have to put this on. And it is, I agree with you. It's, it's an ethereal, spiritual armor that's being put on. And you made an important point I want to get back to you about going to a place with a large group of people and feeling an energy. And I think that's really important. I think that takes place all the time, that you can go in a large crowd where there's something happening at an event and feel a very negative energy spiritually. And I think there's a power. There is a power in people being unified in a cause. And I think the, 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 the biblical, the clearer biblical example of this was at the Tower of Babel, when Nimrod wanted to unite the entire world in one city, one tower that I also believe was trying to access that same portal. I think that what they were trying to do was access the heavenly realm. They said we have a tower that reaches uh-huh. unto heaven. I think they were trying to reconnect with the fallen angels and bring back the days of Noah. I think that was the whole goal of the Tower of Babel. And there's an interesting comment. When God sees what they're doing, he says that if he did, if they completed the tower, he said there would be nothing that could be withheld from them that they could imagine. Whatever they wanted to achieve, they could do if they completed that tower. So there is something about unifying humanity. And I think it's because of our spirit that it was going to unlock and tap into some power that God said nothing could be withheld from them that they imagined to do if they finished them. So, of course, God has to go, again, directly intervene and go down and destroy the tower and scatter the nations. And so... I think when you think about that, you know, that's a really, it's a really powerful statement that God makes, that humanity could do anything that they want to do. So we have to be very careful about how we align ourselves. And I, I think you made another good point that we're so focused on the physical and where it leads us. And I think that, you know, when you think of our witness as Christians, that we are supposed to be salt, light, love in this world. And then you look on social media (laughs) there are many christians who are attacking people you know and all sorts of fights and representing not representing the spirit of christ the fruits of the spirit love joy meekness patience temperance 
kindness, yeah. you know, that we have to be careful because if we're dragged into too much wrestling with flesh and blood, not only are we not obeying God, we are quenching the spirit reaching other people because what are we, what are we reflecting? And then, you, yeah. and again, you know, in this digital age, we don't have to gather in a field or in a hall. We can gather online on a Facebook page. Or oh, we can yeah. gather online on Twitter or on any pick your pick your social media. But so we're so that that I believe that energy can also be gathered digitally, and it can take us. Oh, and it can sure. Really, we have to be. We have to really be on guard against this temptation to just get into fights all the time on social media. I, I think I, I, you know, I, I really caution Christians about that. One other thing that I think is so important that that <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure Jesus said it, but you know, it was judge not lest ye be judged. And so much judgment is going on today that that yes. it's to judge another person is to not understand who they are and where they're coming from, and I mean on a spiritual level, forget the physical stuff. And and so that so that sitting in judgment on another person is is probably one of the most unwise things I can ever say to anybody. It's you just don't know who's in those shoes that you're judging. You just don't know. And you know if you can't fit in those shoes, don't say a word. And you know there, there there has been there was a time in my life when I took off a shoe and threw it at my sister and she said what's this for and I said you walk in my shoes for a year and then try to talk to me about what you're talking about. Um, yeah. I mean aside from the fact that my foot was much smaller than hers so she wasn't going to walk a year in it. You know, <laughs> I I did make my point. Um, I just don't yeah. have the time. We are out. And and. Um, is there a, a website you want to put out there? Is there, you know, the book? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Go for it. Absolutely. Yes, yes, of course. So I can be reached at uh, judgmentofthenephilim.com. Just one word, judgment, J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T, of the Nephilim.com. That is also my Facebook page is Judgment of the Nephilim, as well as my Instagram and my YouTube channel. So, uh uh, those are the easiest ways to find me, um, uh, any of those ways, and feel free to reach out to me, ask me questions. I love taking them. I love interacting with anyone who has any curiosity about the Bible, the supernatural, the Nephilim, fallen angels. I'm glad to discuss it. Fantastic. And you're going to be back in April. Yes. I can't wait to come back in April. This is a great discussion. And I will talk about the final Nephilim, about the sequel. Yes, we will definitely dig into that one for sure. Um, I want to thank you for being here. I am I am so grateful that you've wrote that you have written this book, and um, you know I definitely think it's it's something that should be in everybody's library because it's an easy read, and and it's so easy you have you have to go back and reread it because the points are there and and you know hopefully they register because it's it's. It's so much fun. It's so much fun to, to, to put all these pieces together and actually understand what's going on. So, <laughs> so I, I, I couldn't do, agree I more. Thank you. <laughs> I, I thank you, Ryan, for writing this book and the next one, and I look forward to talking to you again. Um, I want to thank everybody for, for being here with us tonight. Uh, this will be up on YouTube and all of the other channels uh, by first thing in the morning. 
And uh, if you listen to it again, and I highly recommend you do that, and like what you hear, please subscribe to the channel because that's how we know you're listening. Otherwise, we are just talking to the ether, and, and that's okay too because sooner or later somebody will listen and get the message. So for now, good night. Everybody have a blessed day, a blessed evening. Um, make sure you put your armor on every morning because it's a, a good time to have armor on because it certainly is crazy out there. So good night, everybody.